Well, good morning again. Uh, I gotta say, like, when the sun doesn't come up, it's hard for me to rise too. I don't know if you have that same experience. But anyway, um, during the gospel reading uh, with Jesus uh, kind of on his way now towards Jerusalem and, and all of that, does he sound like kind of a jerk to you? I mean, there's some people who like legitimately want to follow him, and Jesus shuts them down. So what's the deal with that? Um, it turns out that, um, I mean, there's more, more to the story. There's more going on because it's the Bible, and the Bible is many-layered and many-faceted. Um, and at least in part, it has to do with that first line. Like, Jesus' hour is up, and he sets his face toward Jerusalem. So for the book of Luke, or Luke as the author, like that, that idea forms the backbone of the story that he's telling. Jesus spends his whole career doing stuff, teaching, healing, gathering disciples and investing in them. And then he has this moment up on the mountain where he is transfigured. He becomes something, or he appears like something different. And he's with Moses and Elijah. And Luke is very, very specific. He says that when they're up there, Jesus and Moses and Elijah are talking about his exodus. Quite literally, that's the word in Greek that is used, exodus. In other words, whatever Jesus is about to accomplish, there is, is kind of like a freedom from captivity or freedom from something that is about to be enacted. And then Jesus comes down, his disciples are arguing about something, so you can, <laughs> you can almost feel his disappointment. And then it, he sets his face towards Jerusalem, and then bam, things take off. Jesus will continue on his way towards Jerusalem where he will eventually be betrayed and executed. And the craziest thing to me anyway is that he knows it. He knows what's about to happen. So they are up in the north in the Galilee region. They have to travel south to Jerusalem and the most direct route is through Samaria and that's where a bunch of Samaritans are. Samaritans and Jewish people do not get along. They're actually quite similar, but their places where they are different make them very upset with each other. And so if you notice, there's that line there where the Samaritans are like, no, absolutely not. He is not welcome here because he is heading towards Jerusalem. And that goes back to a very ancient argument because Samaritans say God should be worshipped on Mount Gerizim and the Jewish people say God should be worshipped in the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And so there's some very, very old, bad blood there between the two. And I love that James and John, their brothers, by the way, the sons of Zebedee, uh, when they are rejected, they say to Jesus, hey, should we like basically just annihilate this village? Again, you can kind of feel Jesus' disappointment. He has to do one of those like, yeah, we don't do that here. <laughs> uh, or Interestingly enough, James and John's... Uh, um, a nickname is the Sons of Thunder. There's some speculation that that's why. Uh, 
Um, there's also speculation that they were just loud, which I kind of like. But anyway. And then some people approach Jesus. They want to follow him. And Jesus, his first response is, look, I don't have a place to lay my head. Which is weird because you would think that Jesus would want to gather as many disciples as he can. I mean, he's got the 12, but we know because Luke and other uh, writers tell us that he had a lot of other disciples. The 12 were the inner circle. But he kind of, he says, I don't know if you want to do that. Another person, he says, follow me. And the guy's like, great, let me go bury my father first. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, proclaim the kingdom of God. That's, that's kind of mean, man. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, could you imagine, like, you call me up or, or something like that as, as your pastor, and it's like, hey, uh, someone close to me passed away, can you do the, the funeral? And I say, you know what, I'm busy, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go do the Lord's work. I mean, that's not a good way to, like, keep your job. <laughs> um, yeah. And then finally... A guy approaches him and he says, yeah, yeah, great. Let me go say goodbye to my family. And he says, yeah, then he basically implies, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. What is going on here? Well, that middle one, by the way, let the dead bury their own dead, is very interesting. And I think it gives us a clue in, or a little bit of an insight into what Jesus is saying. Um, he says, let, the, or, let, let me bury my father first, which raises some questions like, are you waiting for your father to die? Is he about to wind things up? Or does he have potentially years or something like that? I, for my money, I think we can, we can, or it's safe to say that he's probably dead at that point. Now, if you're Jewish, you have a very, very limited amount of time in order to bury somebody who has died because death or dead bodies bring uncleanness, which is not a moral thing. It's a, a ritual thing, but you want to avoid it as best as possible. Now, as it turns out, there were prescribed practices for bereavement or grief. And honestly, I, I kind of like them. I think they're, they're very healthy. That if somebody very close to you, like a parent, uh, passes away, the first thing you do is nothing. You sit at home for about a week. Uh, people in your community are expected to bring you food and provide for you. Uh, they will often, uh, it's called sit shiva, which means they will come and they will sit and their expectation is that they have to be silent unless you choose to talk, which I think is kind of healthy. You've lost somebody very important and so you sit there. The last thing you want is somebody to come to you and just talk your ear off. And so instead you kind of sit in that grief, but you do not sit alone. 
Now, after that point, remember the, uh, the, the person who has died has been laid to rest in a tomb or something like that, then for a period of time you can go a little ways. You, you can start to become a little more active. I think there were like limits for how much you could do and how far you could go from your house. But the idea is to help you grieve. Once you leave that period of time, you can kind of go about your business as usual, but you are actually waiting for, and this is kind of gross, the person who passed away for their body to decompose. And then at the end of that process, uh, you would expect it to be about a year, especially in that climate. You would then go and take their bones and put them in a uh, thing, like a box, a stone box, called an ossuary. Now, aside from being gross, what on earth does this have to do with what Jesus is saying? Well, the guy's saying, let me go bury my father, let the dead bury their own dead. I think we can expect that his father has already passed away, and he's probably, because this guy is able to travel around and at least go and approach Jesus, He's probably waiting for that last step to take his father's bones and put them in an ossuary, especially as a son, that would be your duty. Which means it could take months. He could be waiting for months for that process to finish. And Jesus doesn't have that kind of time. Um, think of the third guy. Let me go back and say goodbye to my family, which seems to be an echo of what was going on with Elisha and Elijah in that uh, first Old Testament reading when he's like, okay, great, let me go kiss my mom and my dad. And Elijah's like, what have I done to you? Uh, there, there's, a, there's a very truncated amount of time that Elijah has to work, which is why he gets a little grumpy. I mean, Elijah's just kind of upset anyway. That's kind of the life he lived. But for Jesus, I think the point is pretty clear. He's saying, I don't have enough time to wait. Because as he sets his face toward Jerusalem, the instant he heads toward the holy city, he has at most months to live. Uh, it's not clear exactly how long. Minimum, he has a couple of weeks. At most, he has a couple of months. And he knows it. So there's a sense of, of urgency. There's a sense of expectation. That's how Luke is telling the story. Like, Jesus is very clear that the kingdom of God is breaking in. Like, what God has been waiting to do for a long time, he is now doing. Uh, God, uh, his, or his kingship is here. Don't wait. If you don't want to miss the climactic moment of what God has planning this entire time, you've got to hurry and follow him to Jerusalem. Now, there's kind of a second problem here because we live on the other side of all of this. Jesus went to his death. He went to, through the 
horrors of crucifixion. And then in like that shocking twist that apparently nobody saw coming, God raises him from the dead. And it's not just like a magic trick, like, okay, so God did that and that's weird, but it started something different and something new. Like that new creation broke into our old creation and then it just spread like a fire. But we live on the opposite end of that. So it's not like I can tell you, therefore, forget all of your obligations to your family, all of your obligations to your work or whatever it is you do during uh, the week, and follow Jesus because that doesn't really fit. It wouldn't make sense. And I'd have a bunch of people very upset with me anyway. But I think what the, 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 the point of our contact with this story is that we believe that God is active in doing things in us, through us, in our lives, in our communities. It's not like Jesus ascended to heaven and he was like, okay, you guys have fun. I'll see you in a while, but I'm not telling you when. But instead, as Jesus took his throne, he sends God's Spirit. God's Spirit is with us and God is always active. So I think our point of contact with this story is that when God is active, when we see God moving, be very careful about what excuses you make. Because we as human beings are very good at rationalizing, uh, getting ourselves out of having to do things. I, well, I am excellent at it. Um, I've probably said this before, I have ADHD, diagnosed as an adult. Um, there is one thing I am better at than probably almost everybody here, and that is procrastinating. I would go to the Olympics for it. Um, and I'd probably medal. I don't know if I'd take gold. But when God is moving, when opportunities pop up to serve God by serving others, to minister to other people, how do we respond? What do we do? Um, for me, there's a, a story uh, that always comes to mind when I think of this, and honestly, it's not worth the time it would take to set up this story, but long before I was a pastor, long before I uh, went to seminary, at least a couple of years before, there was a situation where I knew that this person was kind of in a place where they needed somebody to minister to them. And I, I, I think, at least looking back, I know that they were at a point where they were in need of the gospel, in, in need of this, this good news that Jesus died for him and defeated death for him and wants to welcome him in, into his family. And I blew it. I came up with some reason in my head and I didn't do anything. And it haunts me. It, I mean, that's pretty unhealthy. I need to learn to forgive myself. But it's always kind of there. On the other hand, or on the other side, how many times have you, 
been presented with the situation to serve. Maybe you kind of sense that little, that, that prompting, that inner voice. Something drove you to do something for somebody else or to serve God's kingdom. And you listened, and it bore fruit, and it was beautiful. Although this story on the one hand of Jesus kind of denying a bunch of these people who are trying to make excuses can have that negative, um, that, that negative force of like, yeah, don't do that, don't be like that. If you switch it around and come at it from a different perspective, think of all the people who did heed the call. Who were with Jesus at the end only to witness the miracle that the end wasn't the end, it was actually the beginning, and God moved. And so this sermon does not end with a nice bow and wrapping, but rather it ends with a challenge or an encouragement. God is always at work in us and through us. And God is always inviting us to step into that rhythm of God's kingdom spreading and continuing to take root here in Albuquerque and beyond. So in your own life, what does that look like? And I mean, how would I know? I'm asking you. As you go about this week, what might that look like? How can we learn to develop ears to hear where God is active and moving? And as it turns out, coming here is a really good start. Because we believe as we hear God's word, as we receive the sacraments, as we engage with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, God is active. So now take this and let it spread to every other facet of our lives and with whom we interact. Amen. I invite you to rise.